I mean, we did speak kind of briefly about the meaning of Palm Sunday, of Jesus' kind of triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He was treated like a king returning from a victory. Now, what a king does is reign. A king rules. A king's in charge. A king changes stuff. All of us have things that rule in our lives or that reign in our lives. All of us. They, kind of, they function like little tiny kings, all, like all given different directions, different decisions, things that we should do, things that we should think, how we go about relationships. But not all kings are created equal. Some kings want to be good but aren't. Some kings mean, to, mean well but actually don't have the power to do very much. Some kings are just kind of bad. Like, how can we figure out who's the best, especially if they're going to be in charge of our lives? Our ambitions, our need for love, our families, our physical or emotional difficulties, our desires, all these are so varied. And if we were to follow every single one, we'd be torn into pieces because they're all kind of pulling us all these, different, all these different ways. Sometimes we feel like we're pulled in many different directions and we don't know what little king to listen to. What's more important? my emotional life or my relationships or something like that. You know, we're all kind of in different ways. But what we see in these verses in Colossians, what I hope that we'll see as we get into it a little bit, is really what it means for Jesus to be king. What does it mean for Jesus to be king? Now, it's probably not a surprise for someone preaching to say Jesus is king. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like your job. It's kind of what you're supposed to do. I mean, if it's something that Kanye West can say, then of course, someone like me can say Right? Kanye West, his song, Jesus is King. Here's some of the lyrics, by the way. Which, I don't know if you've heard the album, but I mean, it's short, but I think it's really good. Good kind of gospel album. Um, over the fears that we're facing, over the prayers that we're praying, we know, oh, we know, Jesus is King. Over the war that is raging, every step that we're taking, we know, oh, we know, Jesus is King. Somehow, even in Kanye West's lyrics, Jesus being King is connected to the suffering he's going through. Wars that are raging, uh, fears that, that they're facing, there's some kind of connection when we realize Jesus is king and our suffering, something happens there. Something happens there. And what I want to do today is look at uh, how these verses here, especially that first section, verses 15 through 20, um, is to learn why it matters so much that Jesus is king. Like, why does that matter? Why is that a big deal? Why is that something we're going to focus on? Why is that something that Paul focused on? We're going to learn that he's the greatest in all things. And we'll also discover how our lives will be better the more we lean into that truth, the more we lean into that reality. Because Jesus is not just kind of one option among many, one king among many, but the greatest king in all things. And we're most alive when we are aligned with him. We're at our best when Jesus leads us. If Jesus is leading us, that's the best hope we can have to be the best kind of humans we can be. So let's jump into this first section here. Jesus is the greatest in all creation. That's the first verse here, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, if you've heard this before, you're like, yep, yeah, I believe that. Image of the invisible God, firstborn, yeah, I believe that's cool. Um, But what does that really mean? Like, because this is not kind of how we normally talk day to day. What does that really mean? Let's get into it a little bit. First, the image of the invisible God. This is who Jesus is, the image of the invisible God. John, in his gospel in, in chapter 1, says, No one has ever seen God, the one and only, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. So no one's ever seen God the Father, but Jesus, who's in the closest relationship with him, has made known who that Father is. Hebrews 1.3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The Son is the exact representation of the glory of the Father. 
Now, it's not that Jesus is some kind of holy man who was close to God. It wasn't like a good guy. I mean, hopefully he was good. But it's something a little bit more than that. He is God. That's, a, that's very different. This is why Jesus speaks in a way that's different than all the other kind of religious leaders. He doesn't say, you should do things that are really good and then you're going to experience really good. Jesus says, you need to come to me. Like, I'm the most important thing. I am the way, is what he says. The only way to God is through me. That's what Jesus says. It's not, be good like me. He, says, he doesn't say, go to, the God, go to God the way I do. He says, come to me because I am God. That's really different. Come to me if you're weary. I will give you rest. Who talks like that? That's kind of crazy, unless you're actually God. You can either be, C.S. Lewis has the famous thing, Jesus is either crazy and thinking he's God even though he's not, evil, knowing that he's not God, saying that he is, or actually God. So we can't say that Jesus is nice and a good teacher, but not God. He's crazy, evil, or God. And those are really the options we have. Of course, as Christians, we take the Bible as what it says, we're believing what Paul is writing here about who God says he is. And also, uh, another thing that comes up here, the firstborn over all creation. Well, what's the deal with that? Why is that important? Why is Paul wasting ink and paper and all this other stuff saying that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation? What does that mean? Well, having the rank of the firstborn, especially in the context of where Paul is writing here, meant uh, by your very identity, by your very being, you deserve the best things. You get the best schooling, you get the inheritance, you get all the first cracks at all the things, like you have the best standing in the family, being the firstborn. The position of power within the family. And that's where Jesus is. So Jesus was born, but at the same time, it wasn't like there was a time where Jesus didn't exist, because Jesus is also God. It wasn't like Jesus didn't exist until he was born, and then he existed. Like Jesus always existed. In fact, John in his gospel says that Jesus was with God in the beginning. What is God's beginning? Well, that's a weird question to ask. Like, it's kind of eternal. Jesus was always with God, although he was born from Mary. He came to earth as a baby, if that makes sense. We'll get to, we'll get to more about Jesus existing a little bit as we get, go on, as we get to go on. Um, because Jesus is, is God, it's not like the Father had to reproduce to produce him. Jesus was already there. Jesus always was and always will be. Kind of as the beginning of John's gospel says, Jesus was with God in the beginning. That can't be said of all of us. We weren't with God in the beginning, but Jesus was. And it's also, if you look at verse 17, this is what Paul's getting at in verse 17, where he says that he, who's Jesus, is before all things. What does it mean? Like, why does that matter? It's the same kind of thing. Firstborn of all creation, he's before all things. He's like the highest rank. He's what matters most, before all things. Jesus is before all things. So before everything, Jesus. That's how Jesus is. Not like us. Verse 19 also says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All of God's fullness dwelt in Jesus, dwells in Jesus. That's an idea of, of completion. It's not like a partial Godness is in Jesus. It wasn't like when Jesus was on earth, he was sort of God, but not really. It wasn't like even now or before that Jesus was kind of halfway God. Jesus has always been 100% God because Jesus is God. There's a wholeness here. And this is a pleasing thing for God the Father to enjoy. It's not like God the Father is like, ugh, I got to give Jesus some deity or whatever. It's like this, this pleased God because it's a good thing. It's a harmonious thing. All of God is in all of Christ, which means Jesus is God. But he's also man. He's whole. We'll get to that in a second. 
A God who is whole offers his wholeness to others. If a God was whole and refrained from giving his wholeness to others, that wouldn't be a really good God. But Jesus is a wonderful God. He's a great king, and he offers his wholeness to other people. Now, let's talk a little bit about this God-man thing. This is a crazy mystery that uh, is important for us to think about. It's important for a few reasons. One, it's fundamental to who Jesus is. So at the very least, the fact that there is a mystery that exists, fundamental to God's being, teaches us that we don't know everything, which is a really good thing for us to remember. Uh, Secondly, it kind of reminds me of, there was a time, probably a good year, where uh, I think Colin um, brought this up also in kids' ministry as well. When Colin was going to sleep, he would seriously be thinking, he'd be like, God, uh, Dad, Jesus is Jesus, and Jesus is God. That's really confusing. I was like, yeah, I get it. I know, I totally get it. It is really confusing. What's the deal? What, yes, it is, son. What's the deal? Well, the two don't have to be mutually exclusive. It doesn't have to be, if Jesus is man, he can't be God. Like, if this is a book, it can't be a table. That's not how Jesus works. That's not how his identity works. That's not how the Bible talks about it. That's true about a book. Uh, that's true about, like, if this is coffee, it can't be wine or water or whatever. Like, it's either coffee or it's either wine or it's either water, whatever the thing is. It can't be both at the same time. But Jesus can be both at the same time. We can be both at the same time with other things as well. I think if we think of uh, physical metaphors, it just doesn't really calculate. It doesn't work. It, it's illogical. Um, this is a, it's something I brought up in the Alpha course that, that uh, will be, actually, that we just recently finished. If we think of metaphors outside of the physical kind of realm, like a book or something like that, it might be a little bit more helpful. So if Tim is up here playing piano, as he's about to do when we're done here, and we're all going to hum along or, you know, whatever things you kind of not do without singing along. He's playing his piano. When he plays his piano, this whole room is full with Tim's sound, Tim's piano sound. And that's 100% of the sound. The only sound we're hearing, Tim's piano. But let's say I had a guitar and I'm playing along, which I won't surprise a duet on you today, Tim. Um, say I brought my guitar in and I'm playing along. Now it's the same 100% sound, but we're hearing a piano and we're hearing a guitar. It doesn't mean like, Oh, no, how, how does it work? You can hear a piano and a guitar at the same time? That's illogical. That doesn't make any sense. Of course you can hear them both at the same time. And if we are, if we've practiced and we're doing all right together, that will be a harmonious sound together. So there is still a single, complete, whole sound. Sometimes the piano is going to be stronger. Sometimes the, gar, the guitar will sit back. Sometimes maybe the guitar will be a little bit stronger and the piano will sit back. But both the guitar and the piano are able to play together harmoniously. That's what Jesus' identity is like. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. It's actually not that weird when you think about it in our lives. I'm married to Christina. I'm 100% a husband. Me being married to Christina doesn't mean I'm any less of a father to Colin. I'm 100% father to Colin. Not because, I mean, I can be a good father, but the very fact that Colin is my son means I am a father. The very fact I'm married to Christina means I am a husband. So my pure identity, out of the things that I even do, my pure identity is 100% husband, 100% father. 100% um, staff for a redeemer, 100% friend to someone. We have all these kind of things that go on within us, within who our identities are. And when it comes to Jesus, his fundamental identity, 100% God, 100% man. I don't know if that was helpful or if that was more confusing. I don't know, maybe something to think about as we think about this mystery of Jesus being who he is. Now, we don't try to explain things away to undo a mystery. If anything, the more we think about it, hopefully the more glorious it gets. God, Jesus didn't have to come to earth. He didn't have to become a man. Jesus will forever have a human body. 
He has a human body now. He's living in the resurrection. He will always have a human body. He didn't have to do that, but there's a reason why he did. It's a beautiful mystery that we get to learn about. We'll get to more of that reason in a bit. But actually, Paul does bring up the reason. Why is Paul so concerned about all of this? Why does he care about Jesus being the firstborn? Why does he care about Jesus being before everything? Verse 18 says this, and he's the head of the body, the church, he's the beginning of the firstborn among the dead, and here it is, so that in everything he might have the supremacy, so that in everything Jesus would be the greatest. He would reign the best. He'd be the biggest king that there ever possibly could be. All of this is for Jesus to be made known as who he is, which is the greatest king. That's just reality. Another translation, uh, I think the ESV uses the word preeminence, like before everything. It's the highest rank. He does have all the supremacy. And you know what? It doesn't matter what you think about him. That's true. That's who he is. That's reality. And if we want to live in reality, then we come to reckon with these words here. If we want to live in a fantasy where we create ourselves, don't read the Bible. You can live in your fantasy world, fine. But if we want to live in the real world, we look at what the Bible actually says and root ourselves in its reality instead of the other way around. The best thing for us is to not live in some kind of dream world, some fantasy world where we're in charge, but to actually see the world as it is, where Jesus is in charge, and for us to let that crash into our lives. So I guess for all of us, whether you are new to the faith or just investigating or being a believer for a long time, how are we living in this reality? How are we living in the reality that Jesus is the greatest, that Jesus is the best? What else kind of competes with that? Because all of us have those competitions that go on. That, that really holds us back. Are our lives reflecting the truth that Jesus is actually better than everything else? If someone else is to kind of do a personal audit and be like, huh, what's this person, what was this week like? Would they see, oh, Jesus is like a really big deal in your life. Seems like he's the most important thing. Or would they just kind of be like, oh, Jesus, he's an option among others. Or you don't really think about him at all. How would that look like? I don't really want to know the answer to that myself. You know, the, the great news here is that we don't have to earn the best thing. We don't have to earn it. We don't have to scrape for the best thing. We don't have to make ourselves right and sort ourselves out for the best thing. The best thing has come to us. It's a gift. Jesus didn't have to do any of this, and yet he's done that. It's a gift for us, and we get to enjoy that gift. What kind of fool? If someone wrote out a check to you for a bazillion pounds, you just hold on to that check. You're like, I don't know. Should I cash this or not? I'm just going to hang on to it and just kind of look at it. Maybe I'll take it out once a week for a couple hours and put it back. What kind of fool, once you cash that check, you have a bazillion pounds in the bank, would still pretend and act like you're homeless? That would be a foolish thing. But yet all of us have had that bazillion pound check written out to us. Are we enjoying it? Are we loving life the way that a bazillion pound check ought to give us? But really, this is who we are. Blind people, without homes, given everything in Jesus, the mystery of God and man, the greatest among all creation, and we are most alive when we're aligned with him. So Jesus is the greatest in all creation. Paul kind of presents it just as a fact. He's like, do with it what you will. Actually, Paul will tell us what we ought to do with it later on in the letter. But he's also the greatest in creating. Uh, Verses 16 and 17 say this, For in him, in Jesus, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, 
visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It's almost like Paul's trying to get a point here. (laughs) How many times does Paul say all things? Verse 15, all creation. Here in verse 16, all things. Later in the verse, again, 16, all things again. Verse 17, all things two times. Verse 18, and everything. Verse 19, all of God's fullness. Verse 20, to reconcile to himself all things. You think Paul might be trying to tell us something here. All things. This is like it couldn't get more cosmic if he wanted to. He couldn't. If the question is, I wonder if he's king over this. The answer is obviously yes, whatever that thing is. The scope is immense, and cosmic is maybe too small of a word to describe it. It's like this head-exploding emoji that Paul is texting the WhatsApp group at the Church of Colossae. It's like, this is what I need you guys to get. It's crazy. Like, this is beyond even what you can imagine to be true. In Jesus, all things were created. In him, not for any purpose, other than for Jesus alone. And lest we try and kind of narrow that down, Paul says, things on heaven, things on earth, invisible, visible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things. In Jesus, all things were created. Through Jesus, all things were created. That means all things were created for him. You have never seen anything that Jesus did not create. Nothing. Whoever thinks a spiritual life should be private and reduced to like spiritual things, however we might kind of define that, doesn't get it. It's far more expensive than that. But wait, there's more. Because not just through all things. Also, look at verse 17. This is the thing that really actually gives me that emoji thing. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In Jesus, all things hold together. In the person of Jesus, he's holding together all things right now. Jesus right now is holding together your atoms and molecules and the chair that you're sitting on all together. But everyone, um, everyone else, not just you, the whole universe, everything. Well, you know, of course, we know atomic forces exist and we know why like molecules and things like that are connected, things like this. We all know all that, of course. But, but why do those exist? Why did those ever come into being to begin with even before a Big Bang? Why? Science teaches us what is, and it's really good to get to know that stuff. But once you get to the why, you aren't doing science anymore. You're doing philosophy, or you're doing religion, or you're doing theology, you're doing something else. If you talk about the why or the way that things ought to be, that's not science, that's something else. You're in the realm of theology. Science teaches us what is. Jesus teaches us why it is. Why it is. In him, all things hold together. The reason why you are held together right now is so that Jesus would be seen as the king. Even as we sit here today, even as I stand here today, you get to exist because he has always existed and in love, he holds you together. These are not impersonal forces. This is a personal force behind everything in love, holding you together, all things. This is why we say an ongoing relationship with Jesus is about your whole life, not just about part of your life, not just the Sunday mornings or missional community meetings, every single part of your life, when you ask the question, is Jesus about this? The answer is always yes. It all, he always is. If there, oh, it's not on here. I'll talk about this quote in a second. If you have any questions about anything I'm bringing up today, you can go to that website, redeemermcr.com slash ask, and it's a confidential way for you to present any questions, and if you have any, 
we get to them after the sermon, just to kind of let you know. If you're like, oh, I don't understand this, or that was kind of unclear, or whatever, yeah, whatever you want to know. Here's a quote from Abraham Kuyper. I'll talk about him in a second. He said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Not a square inch. There is no place you can go where Jesus has not been and isn't already. He is there, and he's, he's the king over it. He's already cried, mine, over it. Abraham Kuyper, he's kind of a freak in nature. He was um, prime minister of the Netherlands. He was a theologian. He taught in seminary, all sorts of things. Um, he said this in an opening address to the Free University in Amsterdam in 1880. And he was mostly speaking into the lives of people who were about to go into university. They're thinking about careers. They're thinking about what they're going to do for the rest of their lives. I think it can be really easy to separate our careers from our spiritual lives. But if all of life is meant to be under the reign of Christ, and of course that includes our careers, if all things are created for him, then your brain, your desires, your careers, all the things that you want to be working at is included in that all things, is included in a square inch for sure. So whose career is it? It's actually not yours. Whose world is it? It's not yours. Who made this calling? Who crafted your desires? They are not yours. They didn't come from you first. They all come from Jesus, who is the greatest in creating. And we are most alive when we're aligned with him. And this is really good news for us because it relieves us of always having to come through for ourselves or always having to figure it out for ourselves. How many times have you had maybe like a fork in your career life and you're like, oh, I don't know what to do or your family life or your relational life and you feel that burden of having to figure it out yourself? It doesn't have to be like that. Jesus is king over that. He's king over it all. And it doesn't mean it's not difficult. It can still be difficult, but it's a different kind of difficulty when we follow a king who's already paving the way versus feeling like we have to pave the way ourselves. Because Jesus is the greatest in creating, that means nothing is above his reach, nothing is beyond his power. That means whatever difficult thing you're facing now, whatever it is, Jesus is already present and already at work, I guarantee you. It could be something completely overwhelming for you. And Jesus is there working. If this were not true, we would only have to depend on ourselves. But since it is true, we can depend on him in all things. And this is really good news. I don't know about you guys, it's really good news for me because it gives, not only gives me more responsibility, but it gives me a responsibility that I can handle. It allows me to be a human instead of trying to pretend like I'm a god. If Jesus is in all things, there's no place we can go where he isn't there. And that means the Christian life leaves no room for not going there, whatever the difficult thing might be. That difficult conversation, that difficult issue, fighting for, uh, for justice, laboring to resolve conflict, working through what can sometimes be the difficult life of just following him on a day-to-day basis. It's not always easy. We're sent to people who we don't know yet. And if we don't go to the difficult parts of our own lives and the lives of others, I don't think we can say we truly believe these verses. But Jesus is the king over all things. And to relieve anyone here of thinking that they have to do this alone or in your own power or if you're by yourself, just hear these good news, Colossians 1.17. In him, all things hold together. In him, not you. Thank God for that. This is really good news because I need someone stronger than me to hold things all together. I need someone better than me to hold things all together. I need to be reminded that I'm not the one holding things together. Is anyone else with me on that? Gosh. 
It's a horrible kind of narcissistic place. And yet you feel like you're a martyr because, oh, I'm doing all this yourself. But you put your, if, you, if we put ourselves in the place of a king, of course we're going to feel a burden that we can't bear. We're not supposed to be there. There's no place you can go, no place you came from. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our whole human existence over which Jesus, who is better than everything, does not cry, mine. So Jesus is the greatest among all creation. He's the greatest in creating. Lastly here, last point here, Jesus is the greatest in new creation. This is uh, specifically looking at verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is Jesus, head of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. And we're going to get a lot more into resurrection next week as we get to kind of have a special celebration of resurrection with Easter. Um, but it's not like it's not here either because for a Christian, every day is, is Easter day, Easter Sunday. Um, Jesus is the head of the church. He's the beginning. He's also the firstborn from the dead. So there's two areas here we want to focus on for new creation, the church and the resurrection. Let's first talk about the church. Jesus is the head of the church, not me, not you, not your desires, not your thoughts, not your ideas of what worship style should be, not your idea of like how a Sunday service should be, not your idea of like all these other kind of things that we all have. Jesus is the head, and if he's the leader, all of us are followers, every single one of us. That's our first thing. We're followers before anything. It doesn't matter if you're a leader or not, we're all equals when it comes to Jesus. And so what is the church? The church is a collection of people who were once dead, who are now alive in Jesus. These people receive his love, reflected to each other, and into the world. The church is a part of the new creation. It was dead, which is old creation. Now it's alive, which is new creation. Those in the church participate in this new creation, and it's led by Jesus. That's why our mission statement says, joining Jesus and bringing wholeness to Manchester. We don't bring the wholeness ourselves. We join Jesus as he does it. We don't have to be God. We follow God. We aren't bringing the wholeness. Jesus is, and we, as the church, get to join him as he leads us. The church is not a building. The church is not a meeting. The church is not a slogan. The church is a movement of people put into action by Jesus, keeps it going by Jesus' power, responds to Jesus' commands, and only through Jesus' power will it endure. There's no reason why Redeemer should continue outside of Jesus working in it. If Jesus isn't working, it should die. I would like it to die if Jesus isn't working in it. But if he is, it will continue. The church also isn't just something that exists for now. It has a destination. It, it joins God in making all things new. God has chosen to use his church, as in like local churches like ours, to make that happen. I don't know why he's done that, but he has. Like, I, I can't change that fact. And th- but this is why we do what we do. This is why we're about planting churches. Because more churches means more people in churches. means more people hearing about Jesus and working it out in their lives more people experiencing his wholeness and joining God to make that happen. All because Jesus is the one leading it. We are not leading it. It doesn't mean we're not going to have leaders, but it means all leaders that we have before they're leaders, they're followers of Jesus. If he weren't in all of this, this would be some serious nonsense. What are we doing with our lives? Surely we could sleep in, especially a day like today. We've all lost an hour, Right? This, is, this would be a real waste of time if Jesus is not involved in it. There are better things we could do with our lives if Jesus is not involved in it. But if these verses are true, even if just that one single verse in verse 18, if that's true, there's really nothing better we can do with our lives. There's nothing better we could do with this time now than come together and learn more about it together. So Jesus is the head of the church. Let's look at the, um, the second part of verse 18. 
Jesus is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. There's this firstborn language again. So the church is the people that God has recreated and Jesus leads it. Also, Jesus is the resurrection. He's the first one to experience the resurrection. Other people that Jesus brought to life, like Lazarus and his earthly ministry, it's not really technically a resurrection. It's like a resuscitation. Because resurrection means being resurrected into new bodies and new life, the kind of the thing that Jesus experienced. That's not what Lazarus or whoever else like, might have come back to life experienced yet. So Jesus is the firstborn of the resurrection, uh, the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus' resurrection is what makes all of this thing real. In fact, there's a, Paul will write uh, elsewhere, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we Christians above all people should be pitied because all our hope rests on his resurrection. If we don't believe in that, or, or if, he did, if he didn't do that, we should be pitied above all people. But the fact that he did means we get to join him in it. When you become a Christian, you were once dead before Jesus, and now you are alive in a very real spiritual sense. This isn't just a metaphor. It's a very real spiritual sense. How do you get to be alive? Well, because Jesus is alive. And when you follow him, you're united to him in a way that he controls and he is always in charge of. You're connected to him closer than anything else you can be connected to. Because Jesus is alive, therefore now you are too. Not because we're great or we're passions or because we want to be good, but because Jesus has done something in us. And I mean alive in more than a sense of like walking around doing our everyday things. I mean alive to the reality of these verses we've been looking at today. We can't understand these verses outside of Jesus' spirit working in us to understand them, let alone put them into practice. Jesus went through death and is now alive, and he gives that new life that he has freely to all those who follow him. This is something that nobody can ever take away. And so that means for us, who are we? We are people of the resurrection. Not our own resurrection, but Christ's resurrection. That's what we're participating. Not our own, but Jesus's. Who saved us from death? By whose power brought us into his light? Jesus did. Jesus saving. Jesus' power. And in that same way, this is how we live. Not my power anymore. It's Jesus' power. It's not my life anymore. It's Jesus' life. I have to surrender my own thoughts, my own desires, what I want to do, because now I'm, Jesus is my king. That means I'm a servant of this king and not a servant of my own king anymore. That's going to change my life. Really, the best, we, the best we can hope to be as people are weak people depending on a powerful God. That's the best we can bring to the table is our weakness. How am I going to get through this? Whatever it is, through the power of the resurrection. Did Jesus rise from the dead? If that's true, any situation you find yourself in, whatever it is, how difficult it is, nothing compares to Jesus going from death to life. If he can do that, he can do anything in our lives. And he will. He has the power to. He's more than enough for whatever you face now, whatever you will face in the future. So if Jesus is working in all areas of life, if he's holding it together, and if Jesus is leading his church, if we squash those two ideas together, Jesus the resurrection, Jesus leading his church, squash those two ideas together, trying to make sense of them, this is what we learn. You, where you are right now, in your relationships, in your career, even like sitting here, the thoughts that you're having of where you are right now, you have the opportunity to bring wholeness where it wasn't before. Because you experience a resurrection for yourself and you're following Jesus in the church. You, not, not me. I have my own kind of relationships and my own kind of responsibilities. I don't have your relationships or your responsibilities. You do. You, wherever you are, maybe even more than that, 
had the opportunity to enjoy that kind of life, regardless of whatever situation you're in. Before we actually give it to others, we really enjoy it for ourselves, or really we ought to. Enjoy that wholeness that we didn't have before. And the Holy Spirit is the gift that the resurrected Jesus gives us as church. This is how we can live this way. We don't live through our own power. We live enjoying wholeness, being able to give that to other people because of what he's done for us and through us. Not in our own power, but his. So that means wherever you are, there is an opportunity to bring wholeness. You don't have to see it. It could be complete foggy out there. You're like, I have no idea where I'm going. But what you, the only thing you can offer is your weakness and your ability to trust that Jesus is going to lead you to some opportunity to bring wholeness. That's what Jesus does. And therefore, that's what the Spirit does. And that's who resides in us. He brings wholeness. So how does that work out in your job? You have that difficult work colleague. Or maybe your job itself is just really difficult. Maybe doing a job you wish you never really signed up to do. How, how many people's jobs have been changed upside down or completely removed you know, for a year? That's a difficult thing to get through. And that's just one small part of our lives, isn't it? From people who get this reality of what Paul's talking about here, they love their job more even when it's difficult, and they're more effective in their job as well because we're not working out of purely human power, working out of God's power in us. We're working out of the resurrection that we have in Jesus through the Holy Spirit. This also means that where you are, you have the opportunity, again, to enjoy that wholeness. This is what Jesus gives, and therefore this is what the Spirit gives. Enjoying something means taking our time, kind of like lingering over it. You don't enjoy a meal by like scarfing it down in five minutes and move on to the next thing. You know, you take your time with it. You like maybe slowly eat it. It's difficult for me to eat slow because I like to eat a lot of food, but maybe as much as you're able to. Uh, and you like hang out and you linger. Like that's the best kind of, when we had those, and we will in the future, I promise, the best kind of dinners are the kinds you just, they feel like they, you know, they're hours, but they felt like they took minutes. Because you're enjoying it, you're lingering. It's not an anxious thing. You're not going through a tick box. You're not like, you know, trying to be, okay, now we talk about this. Let's make sure we talk. There's no agenda. You're just enjoying it. That's really how our prayer life should have some element of that. That's not a list of tasks. It's a, it's a way to enjoy God, to linger over Him, to be present with Him. It's what reading the Bible can be like. It doesn't have to be like, all right, I need to make sure I get through this chapter today, so I'm on task to do this one and this one. I mean, it's okay to have a plan, but if that plan inhibits you from enjoying the fact that you're reading God's words to you, scrap that plan. That plan is not worth it. <laughs> Just read the Bible for the fact that you could possibly enjoy it because God loves you, and these are the words to prove it. This is why we are most alive when we are aligned with him. He's the one who gives us life. And we can't really have that kind of life any other way, even though we try to all the time. We can't find it anywhere else. Now, how in the world is all this possible? How is this all possible? Like, I found most people's objections to Christianity is actually it's too good to be true. It's not that it's not good enough. It's like, that sounds like a fairy tale. It's too good to be true. How in the world can this be true? Well, Paul talks about how it can be true in verse 20. Through him, through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus brings life. He brings life. He's now doing that. In, that, in this life, there is peace. That's what reconciliation is, a wholeness. To have something that's not reconciled, there's not wholeness. It's incomplete, something that's broken or fractured. Reconciliation is a wholeness, a completeness. To reconcile something is to take things that are apart and to put them together, to restore them, to make them whole. Jesus brings his life through his death. That's what verse 20 says. 
His death on the cross, through the cross, all things were made whole, reconciled to himself all things. That means Jesus on the cross is actually doing something. It's more than just a metaphor or a good story or like, isn't that cool to see or isn't that interesting kind of theatrical display. It's a historical event event that had a massive impact at the time that continues to have and will have eternal ripples going out. Jesus dying made peace where there wasn't peace before. It gave wholeness where before things were just left unreconciled. When Jesus gets involved in your life, he becomes the greatest. All the other kings are dwarfed by King Jesus. Before aligning our lives with Jesus, our lives were out of alignment. They're going every way. We think we're doing what's best in our own eyes and we just kind of get into trouble here and there. We just kind of stumble through and hopefully we have like a 50% good life and then we're happy with that. That is not a life of peace. That's not a life of flourishing or wholeness. That's just barely getting by, if that. But we, when we are aligned with the king, as Paul talks about in these verses here, we are free to be most alive. Everything wrong we've done in our lives, everything wrong we're doing now, everything wrong that we will do, that not only holds us back, it's more than that. It's death in our lives. And not just in our everyday experience of life, but between us and God himself. If we refuse to align ourselves with the king, there are consequences. And that is not peace. That is not wholeness. Because now we're off the track of how humans ought to be. We end up in a pit that we created for ourselves and we've dug it in so deep there's no way out. Like we're scrambling to get out and it's too high. Only a good king would possibly stoop so low to pull us out of that pit otherwise. Extend his hand to us and offer us a way out. Jesus on the cross, he extends his arms out. Extends it out as an embrace. Not to push away, but as an embrace. For everyone who wants to come to me is able to come to me. And when you come to me, there is a path to go on. And that's the best thing for you. That's not always going to be easy. But it will be the best thing for you. That's how a good king acts. We will be fools not to rush to him, not to take hold of this life, even with all of its costs. And there are costs. And when the king stoops down and scoops us out of that pit, we have a new life to live. We aren't down there anymore. We're up here with Jesus. We get to see things more clearly. And here there is hope for the all things, not only held together by him, but brought together by him, reconciled. See, Jesus is the greatest in all creation. He's the greatest in creating. He is the greatest in new creation. What good news is this for us? What good news is this for us? 